Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. So we're able to leverage about 20 years of mRNA vaccine research um, to generate a product that we thought was going to work. We were lucky, did. We were able to do phase one and two compressed. Normally, the FDA would say, do one, take your time. What's the rush? Well, there was a rush. Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Deborah Martin for Elite Learning. When it comes to vaccines developed in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been no shortage of discussion among healthcare professionals and the public alike. Some hail the vaccines as a medical miracle. Others have been skeptical of the science underlying the vaccines, particularly since their development appears to have occurred at breakneck speed. The skeptics are not small in number. According to the CDC, about 15% of adults in the U.S. remained unvaccinated in early 2020. That's roughly 38 million people. Among healthcare workers, the ranks of skeptics was also high. The latest review conducted by the CDC in September 2021 showed 30% of people employed in healthcare had not been vaccinated at that time. As our guests noted at the top of this episode, the COVID-19 vaccines were deployed far faster than previous vaccines. The path from viral sequencing to an FDA-authorized vaccine took just 11 months as the scientific community pushed to develop tools to reduce the illness, suffering, and death caused by something we hadn't seen before, a novel virus. And one of the tools developed, the mRNA vaccines, was novel too. Although tested for years, mRNA technology hadn't been previously rolled out for clinical use. That's a lot of new for people to absorb. We don't usually see pharmacological feats happen in real time. Said Omir, a vaccine researcher at Yale University, pointed this out when he tweeted, This is evolving science. You are seeing sausages being made in front of the world's eyes. To help us make sense of the sausage making and how the COVID-19 vaccines work, we were joined by Dr. Daniel Griffin, a physician scientist who is board certified in internal medicine and infectious disease with expertise in global health, tropical medicine, parasitology, and virology, including COVID-19. You can learn more about Dr. Griffin's background in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Dr. Griffin, some people have hesitancy about COVID vaccines due to the quickness in which they came to market. It would be great if you could explain how that happened. And I don't know if you want to start with that, if you want to lead with that, or if there's something else you want to start with first, because that could be a heavy topic, just in and of itself. (laughs) (laughs) No, I agree. Well, well, welcome, everyone. Glad you're here. Um, and, And what I'm hoping is that by the end of our discussion, um, everyone feels really confident. They feel they feel educated about vaccines, and as a consequence, they're able to make a decision that that they feel is not frightening. Um, that they feel is an educated decision. So, um, I have a number of objectives. I always like to lay these out. That's a great educator in you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> okay. So, so one is I want people to to list. It's not a long list, but list the different types of vaccines that are available for COVID nineteen. 
Um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, how you look at it here in the U.S. is not a big long list. It's okay. Um, the other is I, I want people to actually understand what are what are the potential um, risks of vaccines, but what are the actual vaccines? What what are we seeing, um, and what are those risks for you as an individual? Um, and then what I'm hoping people can then do is apply this knowledge. Um, so either they can be recommending or they can be selecting, um, you know, the, the best vaccine for themselves, the best vaccines for their, for their patients. Um, because, you know, different vaccines may be a different choice for different individuals. Um, the other, and I think this is really important, um, long COVID, we're going to discuss the impact of COVID-19 vaccines. Um, if you take these before, um, a potential exposure, but what if you get exposed? What if you get infected? Um, should you take a vaccine afterwards? Is that going to help with long COVID? Um, do people get reinfected, getting vaccinated? Can that help you prevent that second infection, that third infection? Um, which mm -hmm. I think we're up to four or five now in some people. Wow. Um, and I think, and this is really important because I think this is confusing a lot of people. What's the difference between vaccine efficacy against infection, the vaccine's ability to prevent you from getting infected, versus vaccine efficacy against disease? So we've Good got a, we've got a lot to talk about. We do, um, and I, I have my case study that I start with. So let's let's think of a real person. We were all probably thinking about ourselves, but here is a seventy year old man um, with hypertension, diabetes, a little bit of a weight problem, and he is considering um, vaccination options. Um, he's already taken the plunge. He already got his first dose of the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, but he had a reaction. Um, went ahead, was seen by an allergist, and was actually diagnosed with a PEG allergy. We'll talk a little bit about what that is. And he's here to discuss his options. And he just, he really wants, like everyone here, to really understand vaccines. He really wants to, us to lay it out. So what, what are we, we going to be talking about when it comes to the vaccines? He wants to know about the different studies. How do we get the information? Um, what are the different types of vaccines? And how do you make these decisions when when some people feel like we don't have as much data as we would like. And when you say he had a reaction, some people say they have a reaction when they have a sore arm. And then other people have reactions that are much more impactful than a sore arm. So did this gentleman have um, a, large, a big reaction or was it an irritating reaction? <laughs> so that is that that is excellent. That's one of the first questions we ask when someone say, "I had it. I had an issue. I had a reaction to the vaccine." Is it expected reaction? Is it reactogenicity? Is it you basically had an immune response? You saw what we were hoping the vaccine would induce by turning on your immune system. Did you get a little bit of a fever? Were there some swelling of the lymph nodes? Did you feel a little crummy, all that sort of immune reactogenicity? Did you maybe get a little redness or maybe it hurt where you got that vaccine? Um, or did you have trouble breathing? Did you feel like mm -hmm. your throat was closing? Um, that's really the distinction. We're talking about the difference between normal expected reactogenicity, evidence that that vaccine is working, and an allergic reaction where I, I'm having trouble breathing, I'm covered in this horrible rash. Um, and I and I think that is really important as that guides us because we we hear a lot of people right got that mm -hmm. vaccine and it took a day off from work feeling a little bit um, that's expected that's reactogenicity we're okay with that uh, this gentleman actually had trouble breathing he's one of those <laughs> rare um, but you know individuals who had that thank you for that clarification no thank you 
So let's go through. I mean, I think your question, like, how do, how do we find out that these vaccines are safe? Um, you know, what, what studies, what science goes into it? Because um, a lot of people have raised this concern, right? I mean, early on, like, how quickly can we get vaccines? And, you know, initially we thought it would be many years. And when we got them in a year, they said, oh, that was too fast. They can't How'd... be good if you did it that fast. <laughs> exactly. You go back out there, <laughs> you work some more, you come back in a year. Um, well, how, how do we do this? And part of it was financial, part of it was compressing what we normally do. So what, what do we normally do and how did we speed things up during the pandemic? Um, normally, we go through a number of study phases. We start off with a phase one. This is just a pure safety trial. Um, we give the vaccine to a small number of individuals, and we do a few things to see if it's actually stimulating the immune system. Um, then we move up to a phase through. We expand this a little bit more. Now we're starting to give it to hundreds of people. We're starting to give it people in a broader range of age. We're looking and seeing how well do they tolerate this. So this is safety. And we're also starting to get a sense of what degree of immune stimulation are we getting. Um, we're hoping in these first two trials, we're finding not only is it safe or not, um, but also are we seeing those immune stimulation, um, blood levels, things like antibodies, maybe looking at T cells, things we'll talk more about. Now, what we did in the time of the pandemic is that phase one and phase two are kind of pushed together. Instead of it just being 10 or 20 people, we say, you know, let's go ahead. Let's give this to 100 people. Let's sort of accelerate and make what we call a phase one and two at the same time. So we sped that up a little. The next thing, and this is the phase three, we call them phase three efficacy trials. These are those big placebo control trials where we actually look at efficacy and we start to look at less common side effects. So these are the trials that we're going to talk about 30,000, 40,000 people, um, you know, half or a third uh, getting placebo the rest actually getting the vaccine and then watching and seeing during a pandemic, how many infections are we seeing? How many people are getting severe disease? Um, now, these are expensive to do. If you're not during a pandemic, how, how often is someone going to get an infection? How often is someone going to get in, uh, in the hospital? So a couple things we were able to do. So we're able to leverage about 20 years of mRNA vaccine research um, to generate a product that we thought was going to work. We were lucky, did. We were able to do phase one and two compressed. Normally, the FDA would say, do one, take your time. What's the rush? Well, there was a rush. There was a rush. That's <laughs> <laughs> a rush. As millions of people were yes. succumbing to the virus, yes. Yeah. Um, and then the big thing with phase three, phase three trials are really expensive. Millions, tens, hundreds of millions. It can really cost a tremendous amount. And so who's going who's gonna to put that bill? Who's going to pay for that trial? What if it doesn't give us the answers we want? So that was Operation Warp Speed. That was companies like Pfizer just anteing, anteing up and taking the risk and saying, you know what, um, we are going to go ahead and we're going to throw money at this problem. And boy, throwing money at problems can speed things up, as we mm -hmm. saw. So just sort of why, how did it happen so fast? Um, there was nothing magical going on. It was just really all these things being compressed. And then during a pandemic, if you say, well, we're going to watch and wait for the first 100 people to end up sick or 100 people to end up in hospital, well, during a pandemic, you don't have to wait very long. They're showing up at your doorstep in no time. 
Yeah, it's um, and and I and I think we also have to thank the public, right? A lot of people signed up to be citizen scientists. Mm-hmm. So we were involved with um, some of the J and J early investigation, and what a lot of people did, and by a lot, I'm talking about a million people volunteered, and they said, "If you want, I will be in a trial to test the J and J vaccine." We created readiness cohorts. So. The same day that J&J got the go-ahead to do their phase three efficacy trials, we had a million volunteers scattered around the country. We could look and see where are we seeing the most COVID cases? Where are we expecting to see them in the next two or three months after we vaccinate? And then we had 30, 40,000 people enrolled within a week or two. That's fastest enrolled. (laughs) Fastest enrolled vaccine trial in history. And, And that was because people... Citizen scientists, we're jumping in. I want to volunteer. I want to be part of the solution. I like um, that citizen scientist and and the contribution that they made was incredible. Were there other companies that also donated funds? Did the government throw money at this as well, or was yeah, so it just the big pharmaceuticals? So the the with Moderna, so Moderna, the mRNA vaccine, Moderna, the Spike Vax. Um, that was actually the U.S. government saying, we are going to give you the money. We're going to help you ramp up. We're going to give you the money to do these trials to produce this vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, Pfizer did it on their own. Um, J&J got support from United Health Group, some other companies. So a lot of people were coming. Um, my colleague, Peter Hotez, who's, who worked on that, um, that vaccine um, down at Baylor that they're going to um, be distributing in India, Tito's Vodka. Everyone was stepping up. This was all hands on deck. It was it was really a special time. This this is not something that happens in a vacuum. This is what happens when everyone gets together and works together. It is amazing what can be accomplished when the focus is laser focused on a disease such as this. It it really it makes such a difference. And Um, it really wasn't developed in a year. We could almost say it was developed in 21 years or 22 years. Correct. I think that that's With a the great background. Way about it. Yeah, no, I think that is a great way to think about it. This did not just happen in a in six months, in a year. This was, well, at least for the mRNA vaccines, mm-hmm. it was 20 years in development. For the adenovector vaccines like J&J, AstraZeneca, again, decades of people working on these problems. Um, we're in many ways lucky the timing of when this happened. You know, if this had happened too, too, um, too many years in the past, we wouldn't have been ready we wouldn't have been able to launch these vaccines so quickly. Very impressive. So let's talk a little bit about the vaccine types and what we're, what we're trying to do with these vaccine types. So, and, and a little bit of this, this is going to be that history lesson. Like what, what vaccines have we used over the years and, and what are we doing now? Um, so some of the first vaccines that we're, we're used to are these whole virus vaccines. And we're going to use polio as an example here. Um, let's think about an individual who uh, um, has polio and they get sick and potentially has paralysis. Well, one of the first ideas, this was the, the injectable Salk vaccine, is let's grow up a whole bunch of that virus. Let's use formaldehyde. Let's inactivate it. Let's make it so that virus can't make people sick. Um, and then let's the, let the immune system see it that way. So that was our whole virus inactivated vaccines. Um, some people went down that road. Um, but what are the challenges, right? Got to grow up all this virus, huge, huge vats of virus. You've got to inactivate it, make sure it's not going to make anyone sick. Um, the early days of polio, right? There were some issues. People didn't do such a great job. 
Um, then there was the the Saban Sundays. I don't know if any of our listeners are old enough to remember Saban Sundays. Everyone going to the gym, getting their pink sugar cube. And that actually had a virus which had been made weakened, attenuated. People took that sugar cube, were exposed, made a response so that should they actually encounter the wild type polio virus, they would have that protection. Um, but now we move into the modern era. Um, protein-based vaccines. Um, think of that, that shingle shot. When we all hit 50, everyone should be <laughs> thinking about that shingle shot. Um, no one wants shingles. <laughs> Those no of us one. that had chicken boxes, kids, that virus is sitting there. It's waiting for an opportunity. Um, and this was really just taking the protein, and a protein is something that's maybe on the outside of the virus, showing your immune system, letting it learn from this. So if that chicken pox virus tries to come out, our immune system damps it down. Um, this is that Novavax vaccine we're waiting for in the U.S. We'll talk more about this. Letting your immune system see that protein and then being ready to protect you. Um, then we move into the mRNA. We call it the nucleic acid vaccines. Um, and we'll go through a little bit of the immunology on how this works. But we're trying to let our immune system see the protein before we see it as, a, as an infection. So we're ready to go. Um, and here, basically, we call it the sticky note. We're giving our body the instruction manual so our body can make that protein, makes it for about 48 hours, the immune system sees it, we learn. And then the J&J, &J, the AstraZeneca style, the viral vector vaccines, um, you actually go ahead and you take a, another milder virus and you have that actually present to the immune system this spike protein that we'll talk a little bit about. So, all right. Are we ready for some basic immunology? I think so. And I will tell our <laughs> listeners that um, you have provided some really good graphics. So if you're a visual learner, they will be available in our show notes uh, for this episode. So be sure to take a look at that uh, at the show notes because there are some really cool diagrams that uh, will be in there for them as well. Okay. Thank you for bringing that up. I am a visual learner myself. So all the visual learners out there, um, I'm going to be actually talking about basic immunology and this will be up for you to look at. So what is going on when we say teaching the immune system? Who, who, who is this? Who's this immune system? What, what players are we trying to teach? Well, the big thing that we're trying to teach are our B cells and our T cells. What is, what is that about and what is the difference? Well, the B cell is that antibody producing cell, right? We hear, I want to get my blood work. I want to get my serology. I want to get my antibodies checked. Who's making those antibodies? It's the B cells. And the B cells are sort of a go it alone, right? They can actually interact directly with the virus and start making those antibodies. They can go to our lymph nodes, work a little bit with others, get even better at this. But it's our B cells that produce a lot of those antibodies. Um, but I will tell you, we'll get to this. Once those B cells start producing those antibodies, some of them keep producing the antibodies, some sort of take a little step aside, but they remember they're the elephants of the immune system. They're going to remember so that should you see this again, they're ready to jump into action. Um, the other side, and I'm going to say T cells will save the day. I feel like the poor T cells are not getting <laughs> enough attention. Um, the T cells, they need a little bit of help. Um, once the virus gets into a cell, there's a processing. There's actually special antigen presenting cells that are going to show parts of that spike protein and other viral proteins to the T cells. And then the T cells are going to learn, they're going to expand, and again, they're going to remember as well. 
this is that we think major protection against severe disease. So B cells and T cells, and we'll be talking a little bit um, about how the different vaccines. So just to run through those different vaccines one more time that we talked about, how do, how do they connect with the, the B and the T cells? Well, whether we're dealing with an attenuated, so a weakened form of the virus or an inactivated form, um, those are going to end up, those, those viruses are going to end up in cells and prevention professionally be presented to the T cells or our B cells are going to see that spike protein ahead of time. And now they're going to be ready to go. And we have some we have examples of vaccines that have worked that way. As I mentioned, the oral polio SOC, the oral polio Sabin vaccine, so the Sabin Sunday vaccine, and we have the injected um, SOC vaccine. So this has worked, um, and some people are trying those. Now, I will say, why aren't those prime time here in the U.S.? They have not worked quite as well. We have better vaccines that we've been able to develop. So let's talk a little bit about those better vaccines. So we're going to talk about the viral vector vaccine. So what do we do here? This is a little bit of cooking in the lab. Um, <laughs> we're taking a virus that is, is not that worrisome for us, and we're actually giving it a payload. We're having it present that spike protein to our immune system. Our B cells are seeing this. Our B cells are starting to produce all those antibodies. Over time, those antibodies are getting better and better at binding that virus and neutralizing it. Um, we're also getting our T cells. Those proteins are getting into our cells. They're being presented. Same thing is happening. Now, prior to this, we had not used a lot of these viral vector vaccines. We had used them in the Ebola outbreak. Um, at that point, we had given it to you know, 10, 20, 30,000, 100,000 individuals. So with the rollout here of the COVID vaccines, millions now, and we're actually learning a lot about this technology. Um, originally, the idea, we'll get into this with the, uh, the J&J, was that one and done because people wanted that option. Can I just get one shot? I really don't want to. Um, well, pretty good with one, but not at the level where we want to get. So we'll be talking a little bit about that as a choice. Um, and then we move to the, um, the, the darling of the day, right? Our mRNA vaccines, the, the fight between Moderna and Pfizer. Who's, who's better? How close to 100% can we get? <laughs> Um, I was joking, my middle daughter, um, Eloise, you know, Eloise, you already have a 95. What are you going for? A <laughs> hundred, <laughs> so, right? A <laughs> hundred. We are going for a hundred. Um, and I have to say, going into this, we had two decades of work on these mRNA vaccines, trying to get them ready, but we had not brought any licensed vaccines. What, what are we doing here? How does this work? Well, remember, we're trying to show our B and T cells that spike protein. We can inject it in, in, in another, in the virus itself, but it's been weakened or it's been inactivated. Um, we can just present that protein in mass. We talked about the, um, the protein-based vaccines, or we can do the sticky note. We can give the instruction manual to our cells. We can say, you know what? Make a bunch of this spike protein, show it to your B and T cells. Um, and that mRNA and our cells, everything is full of mRNA. We put that little bit of sticky note in there. And for about 48 hours, our cells are producing that spike protein, and then they crumple up the sticky note, they throw it out, but there's a memory that we saw that. One of the things we have seen with the mRNA vaccines, I think this is important, is it really takes a second time. You know, you see that sticky note, you make a little, not that impressed. You see the second time, you're like, I saw this. I, I really should take this seriously. I should make a lot of this protein. I should remember. 
And that's what we're seeing. And even in some cases, seeing it a third time is even giving us a little bit of a, dare I call it, a boost. A boost. (laughs) Those of us that are all boosted out here. Yes. (laughs) You know, and the protein-based vaccines, which I touched on a little bit there with the Shingrix, with that vaccine that my buddy down at Baylor is working on. Um, This is you just cut to the end. You say, you know what, let's just produce a whole bunch of that protein. Let's just show that to the immune system and how we and see how we do. Though so far, the studies have been pretty good. We'll get back to this. Um, But it is challenging. It's not that easy to make these vaccines. It's not that easy to make them pure so that they can be safe. Um, I think we're all anxiously waiting. I keep getting that question. When when doctor will Novavax be a choice for me? Um, When it's safe is the question or or the answer, right? (laughs) So that's exactly the answer. And that's what the FDA is waiting on. They want to see that this can be produced um, in quantity and that it can be safe, that there aren't any issues with impurities um, because, you know, you're going to be putting this into your body, right? And everyone is asking the question, is this safe? Well, the FDA wants to make sure the answer is a very sounding yes. And that brings up a question that I have heard and maybe this isn't the right time to ask it. And you can say, I'll get to that later. And that's fine. If a patient is immunocompromised, will vaccine efficacy be reduced or will it put them at a greater risk? So I think that's a great question. So if a person does not have a great immune system, then we're probably not going to be thinking about using one of these attenuated vaccines, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to potentially, and we do worry about this. If a person doesn't have a good immune system, what might be a weakened virus in a normal person might get them into trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So here we want to do the education without any, any virus that can replicate. So we start thinking more of the mRNA vaccines. We start thinking more of the, maybe the J&J type vaccine where that's not going to be an issue. These are not able to keep replicating. Maybe the protein-based vaccines when we're available. Um, With the currently available vaccines, the only issue is really how much of a response will I get, Um, depending on what the immune issue is. If the T cells are not working that well, you're just not going to get a great T cell response. If the B cells aren't working well or they're deficient for some reason, you're not going to get a great antibody response. Um, And that at some point might bring up um, passive vaccination, which let's throw that in right now. Some people can't make their own antibodies. And actually, just recently, the approval was for a product where you can actually pre-exposure before someone even gets exposed, you can passively give them antibodies so that they have that antibody shield. We've been talking with Dr. Daniel Griffin, an internal medicine and infectious disease physician with additional expertise in virology about vaccines for COVID-19. It's vital that we as healthcare professionals understand how vaccines were developed and how they work so that we may address and alleviate the concerns, not only of our patients, but also our colleagues, and even those of us who have remained reluctant to be vaccinated. In our next episode, Dr. Griffin sets out the facts concerning adverse events, vaccine efficacy against infection, supplements we've heard about, such as ivermectin and zinc, and the role healthcare professionals play in supporting vaccination, and more. We hope you'll join us. This is Deborah Martin for Elite Learning. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts 
for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.